author Max Lucado once said, you can never go where God is not. I think one of the realities of being a Christian that is probably most difficult for Christians to grasp is the fact that God is always with us. That we're never actually without his power or presence in our lives. And I know most of us probably grasp that concept philosophically. It's not that we have a hard time with the, with the idea that God is always with us. It's living our lives in ways that actually reflect the reality that he is in fact always there, always with us, always present. It's the actuality that the power and presence of God is always present with you that I think we struggle with tremendously. Because when you look at how we live our lives, particularly when we are under pressure, I think there's too often too little fidelity evident in how we react to that pressure with our belief that God is actually right there with us in the midst of that pressure. There seems so often uh, to be a disparity between what we say we believe about the power and presence of God always being with us and the way we actually respond to difficult circumstances. In fact, uh, I think the actions of Christians far too often belie, betray what we say we believe about the presence of God. And I think the reason for that is the fact that God very often doesn't respond to our circumstances, our crisis, uh, the pressure we're feeling the way that we want him to or the way that we think he should. And so we mistake him not responding to our circumstances the way we want him to or seemingly not responding at all. We mistake that with him not actually being present with us in those circumstances, which we actually have a dramatic example of in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through first samuel even though god is present you understand uh, listen no matter what is happening in your life no matter how big the mess may be that you find yourself in or maybe that you've gotten yourself into god is always with you his power and presence in your life may not look the way you want it to or think it should. He may not respond how you'd like for him to. He may not give you what you want when you want it, but that does not mean he isn't with you. Because if you're a true believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and listen, no matter what, no matter what, God is with you. He said to Moses in the face of his enemies, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.6, he said to Joshua, in the face of tremendous pressure, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua 1.9, he said to Isaiah, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41, 10. And he said to the rest of us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. This is who our God is. Always present. 
always with you, always working on your behalf, even when he seems silent, even when you have no idea how you're going to deal with whatever it is you may be facing. Listen, God is always with you. The apostle Paul said, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Not one thing in all of creation can separate us from his love. And what does that love look like? Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. God's presence in our lives is how his love is expressed in our lives. And so look, there's, uh, there's no way around it. and there's, there's no two ways about it. God is with you no matter how much pressure you're facing, no matter how present or how absent he may seem to be, you cannot escape or outrun or somehow lose God's presence in your life. And of course, that's the part, uh, that's the part we like to hear, and we should. But there's more to it than that. Because there are some other things you cannot do when it comes to God's presence in your life. And until you understand what those things are, you will never understand how his power and presence are working in your life when it seems like he's not working at all, which is what this story is about today. So let's pick it back up where we left off last time and see what this story has to teach us about how God's power and presence works in our lives even when it seems like he's absent. We'll begin at 1 Samuel chapter 4 with the first 11 verses. 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. The Philistines, who show up in both Judges and Samuel, were one of the sea peoples who migrated across uh, the Aegean and settled on the coastal plain 
of uh, southern Palestine, about 1200 BC, roughly the same time as the Israelites. And there they established uh, a league of city-states. And not only were they skilled in metallurgy, in fact, they were the first people in Canaan to process iron, which means they had Greek military equipment, such as helmets and shields and chainmail armor, uh, swords and spears before anyone else did. But they were also fierce warriors. They defeated the Hittite, uh, Ugaritic, and Amaru kingdoms, as well as the Egyptians and the Israelites. And so by the time of Samuel, the Philistines had already claimed several coastal cities and were now on the march trying to push their territory eastward in order to completely conquer Israel and their lands. And in fact, whereas uh, verse 1 here that we just read says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, the implication being that the Israelites decided to attack the Philistines. We actually get more detail about the circumstances surrounding this battle in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, which says, and I quote, it happened at that time that the Philistines mustered to fight Israel and Israel went out. Scholars generally agree that uh, the account of this battle in the Septuagint is actually more accurate as it is much older, closer to the original translation than the Masoretic text, which is what most of our English Bibles uh, are, are based upon or translated upon. So the, the Philistines actually attack Israel and soundly defeat them, killing four thousand of God's people, which baffles the Israelites. And so the elders, uh, these were the, the senior tribal leaders who were regularly called upon to make important decisions for Israel, as we see throughout the Old New Testaments. They asked the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? So, so they clearly recognize God's sovereignty over their lives, even, even when being attacked and defeated by their enemies. They acknowledge the fact that ultimately it is God who's in control of all things. Listen, uh, even the hard things, right? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Which was the right question to ask. Why did God allow us to lose this great battle? Which is also what makes their next decision so befuddling, so strange, because instead of seeking the will of that same sovereign God, whose desire was for them to repent and return to worshiping Him, as we'll see in the coming chapters, instead they make a decision totally independent of God to carry the Ark of the Covenant into battle with them. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden box made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And it contained the stone tablets of the covenant and omer of manna and Aaron's staff. But most importantly, it was the visible sign of the power and presence of God. As two golden cherubim on top of the ark served as the mercy seat where the Lord would meet with his people and give them his word, as we see in Exodus 25, 22. But, but just to be clear, the ark itself wasn't the power and presence of God. It was a symbol of the power and presence of God. Okay, At the end of the day, it was a wooden box that was covered with gold. A man-made object the Israelites could control, which was the point for the Israelites. Even though they understood that God was sovereign, they thought they could control him because they had reduced God's power and presence to a gold-covered wooden box. And so without seeking the will of God, they carry the ark into battle against the Philistines, 
believing that God would do their bidding and much to their dismay, God doesn't manifest his power and presence the way they thought he would or they wanted him to as 30,000 more Israelites fall on the battlefield that day, including the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And the ark is captured by the enemy. It was a profoundly painful lesson for the Israelites to learn and one that we need to learn as well. The power and presence of God cannot be controlled. The Israelites thought they could wield the ark however they wanted to, and it would perform for them, right? And yet all of their shouting, all of their posturing before the enemy, all their confidence that God would respond when and how they wanted him to was nothing more than noise, a colossal waste of energy that produced nothing beneficial in their lives because they thought they could control the power and presence of God. Listen, when Peter was preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem in Acts 2, he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38, all right? If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of the living God living inside of you, but that doesn't mean you control the Holy Spirit, right? He doesn't follow your leading. No, you're supposed to follow his leading. The Holy Spirit isn't a, a genie in a bottle who's there to answer our beck and call. And yet that's exactly how we treat him much of the time. We expect him to do what we want, when we want it. And then when he doesn't comply, we wonder why he isn't with us. Here's the part you have to understand. It's not that God isn't with you. We've already covered that. God is always with you. By the way, he was still with the Israelites even after the ark was captured, as we'll see in the coming chapters. When God doesn't do what you want him to do, when you want him to do it, that doesn't mean he's not with you. It simply means he's not controlled by you, which leads us to the bigger and really the far more important question. Are you willing to follow a God you cannot control. Because I'll just tell you, uh, most people aren't. We like the idea of the power and presence of God in our lives, but we want it on our own terms. We believe that God is sovereign often while rejecting His sovereignty in our lives. And then we wonder why we're not getting what we want. Listen, sometimes the greatest evidence of God's sovereignty in our lives is us not getting what we want. Okay, the Spirit of God is inside of us, which means through Christ, we now have unfettered access to God. We have the freedom to seek Him and His leading and His will for every single situation we face in this life, which He cares about, by the way, more than we do. He cares deeply about every moment of your life more than you do. And so when you're facing the most difficult circumstances in your life, when you're under the most pressure, you'd better believe God has something to say to you about that. 
He absolutely has a direction for you to follow and answer to that question away through those circumstances, whatever it is. And yet, if you don't even bother to seek his face before confronting that pressure, those circumstances, if you don't take time to listen for his voice before trying to fight the battles that confront you because you want to handle things your way instead of his way, then listen, you're not following God at all. On the contrary, you're expecting him to follow you. But listen, we serve a God who cannot be controlled. And so I'm just telling you, until you learn to submit your life, not surrender. We'll talk about that next, okay? Until you learn to submit your life to the Spirit of God who is always present, always with you until you learn to fully submit your life to him, you're going to constantly struggle with the feeling that maybe God isn't with you every time he doesn't appear to be working in your life. And yet again, it's not that God isn't with you. It's simply that he doesn't answer to you. The power and presence of God cannot be controlled. The Holy Spirit doesn't submit to us. We must submit to him. And look, we talk about surrendering our lives to Christ a lot in church, which sounds really good, except, except that surrendering your life to Christ is nowhere to be found in scripture. The Bible does not command us to surrender our lives to Christ, but over and over and over and over again, it does command us to submit our lives to Christ. And for good reason, listen, when a soldier surrenders, he kneels before his enemy, lays his weapons down, and says, I give up, which is exactly what the enemy wants us to do. When a soldier submits, he kneels before his king. He picks up his weapons and he says, where do you want me to fight? Which is exactly what our God wants us to do. The Israelites had it backwards. They thought they had control over the presence of God and the result was their own devastating surrender before the enemy and the belief that God was no longer with them. When had they simply submitted themselves to God instead, he would have led them straight into battle and an entirely different result would have ensued. But they weren't willing. They weren't willing to follow a God they could not control. And the question today is, are you? Author John Ortberg once said, the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. Now just let that sink in for a minute. He went on to say, in pain, we get very clear about not being God. Let's keep reading, verses 12 through 18. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He, brought the news, uh, he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there's also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also 
Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. It was a solid 20 miles from Aphek to Shiloh, and uphill almost the entire way into mountainous country. And this man from the tribe of Benjamin, who, by the way, a Jewish tradition says was a young Saul, although we don't really know if it was him or not. Either way, this man escapes the slaughter and runs the difficult uphill road back to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, which were the traditional signs of mourning. And after telling the people of the city what had happened, he came and told Eli, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And then verse 18 says, As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over off his seat, broke his neck, and died. Keep in mind, he just, he just told Eli that Israel had decisively lost the battle that tens of thousands of Jews have just been slaughtered by the Philistines, that his own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have been killed. And yet none of that caused Eli to fall off of his seat and die. It was the news that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured that killed him. The truth is, Eli was right to be more concerned about the power and presence of God in the midst of his people than he was about anything else, including his own family. And of course, he ruled Israel for 40 years. He understood the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. The mistake that Eli made was the same mistake they all made. He thought the power and presence of Almighty God was contained in a box. And so it stood to reason, as far as Eli and the Israelites were concerned, whoever possessed the box possessed God. And so in that moment, just as the ark is lost to the Philistines, Eli loses all hope and he falls over and breaks his neck and dies. Honestly, it's really not all that different from how we so often view God today when we act as if he's somehow contained or limited in what he's able to do based on our circumstances or expectations. But listen, the power and presence of God cannot be contained. Okay, there's never a situation that you will ever face in your entire life where God is limited in what he's able to do because of your circumstances or expectations. God is limitless. He's all-powerful. He is all-present, and He is all-knowing. That was true in the Old Testament. It was true in the New Testament, and it is true today. Just because the Ark of the Covenant was a way that God chose to move on behalf of His people, it doesn't mean it was the only way God could move on behalf of His people, but it was the only way they could envision Him moving on their behalf because their expectations had Him contained in a gold-plated box, okay? We have these expectations about how we think God is able to work on our behalf when we find ourselves especially in difficulty, and then when God doesn't work on our behalf the way we expect Him to, we start to lose hope because in our minds, we've limited what God can do according to those circumstances or our expectations of Him. See, the Israelites were focused on the ark of God 
instead of on the God of the ark. And in their midst, in their minds, he was contained in that box. And if we're not careful, listen, in our minds, we'll keep God contained in the expectations of what we think he's able to do instead of seeing him for what he truly is. And un containable, unstoppable, unchangeable, unlimited, immovable, indefinable, all-consuming, all-powerful, ever-present God. Okay, God wasn't unprepared for the ark to be captured by the Philistines. He wasn't freaking out inside that box, wondering what was going to happen to him now that the ark had changed hands. Right? When we're facing great obstacles in our lives, God doesn't need time to prepare for it. We do. We're the ones who need to get our hearts in line with His, which means focusing on Him instead of the obstacles we're facing. And the truth is, the ark had become an obstacle to the Israelites because they thought God was contained inside of it. And as a result, they were so focused on that box, they lost sight of God. And likewise, we can become so focused on the pressures of this life, difficult circumstances, obstacles in front of us, that we lose sight of God and the fact that He's not limited by our circumstances and cannot be contained within our expectations of what we think He should be doing. No, God is uncontainable and He is always with us. And by the way, He's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think according to what the power at work within us ephesians 3:20 the power and presence of god is always with us it cannot be controlled it cannot be contained because he is uncontainable which begs the question are you willing to follow a god you cannot contain because you will never be able to contain God in your plans or your desires or your expectations. He is utterly uncontainable. Author Brennan Manning once wrote, I could more easily contain Niagara Falls in a teacup than I can comprehend the wild, uncontainable love of God. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. When she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. About the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And so much like the demise of Eli, Phineas's wife finds the grim news about her family. But listen, even more than that, the news about the ark being captured to be more than she could bear. And so losing the will to live, she dies in childbirth, naming her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Why did she name him that? because the ark of God has been captured. Yet, as we'll see in the coming chapters, God wasn't up in heaven wringing his hands. He wasn't wondering what would happen next. He wasn't 
worried about the ark being captured and he wasn't controlled, limited, or contained in any way whatsoever by the Philistines or their false gods. On the contrary, the display of God's glory among his people was actually just about to get started because again, as we'll see in the coming chapters as the story unfolds, the people finally begin to recognize their dependence upon God himself rather than on an ark or any other religious presumption. And so they humble themselves before him. And as a result, he does mighty works among them, which simply proves that the power and presence of God cannot be extinguished. We may be blind to it, just as Eli lost his physical sight. We may lose our spiritual vision because of our own assumptions about God, which is exactly, by the way, what pride and presumption do. They blind us to the power and presence of God in our lives, but that doesn't mean God isn't still working on our behalf. In fact, the entire next chapter, while the ark is in Philistine hands, God is ever working on behalf of his people. They just couldn't see it because they thought he was no longer with them because of their assumptions about the ark. Okay, just because you cannot see God working and just because he isn't working the way you expect him to or want him to doesn't mean he isn't working. You just can't see it. The fact is, there is no magnitude of trouble in your life that can ever extinguish the power and presence of God in your life. And the quickest way for you to see his power and presence manifest in your life is to humble yourself before him and submit your life to a total dependence upon him. That's why God, uh, when God said to Paul when he was struggling, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? weakness. And then Paul replies with, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. You see, God's power and presence are perfectly manifested in your life when you are weak and humbled, which is exactly what happens, uh, what happened with the Israelites. The moment they become weak and humbled, God manifests his power and presence in overwhelmingly miraculous ways. It was true of the Israelites, it was true of the apostles, and it is true of us. And yet how many of us can honestly say we're content with weaknesses? How many of us are content with insults? Are you content with hardships? Content with persecutions? How many of us can say we're content with calamities? Right? If we freak out when we can't find toilet paper at the grocery store, how are we ever going to be content when real weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities come? You see, it's not that God isn't working in your life when things don't go your way. It's the assumption that God always wants things to go your way that blinds you from being able to see him actually working in your life. 
His power and His presence is always with you no matter what you're going through. And the quickest way to see that power and presence manifested is to humbly embrace your own weakness and learn to submit, to rely on Him for what you need. Listen, every need, every physical need, every emotional need, every spiritual need. It's recognizing our total dependence upon God that opens our eyes to the power and presence of God. Did you hear me? Recognizing our total dependence upon God is what opens our eyes to the power and presence of God. The power and presence of God, by the way, that cannot be extinguished by any other power in this world. Scottish evangelist and author Oswald Chambers once said, every element of our own self-reliance must be put to death by the power of God. Fact is, God doesn't always work in your life the way you expect him to, right? His power and his presence may not always look like you wish it did or, or think it should. He may not respond how you'd like for him to. He may not give you what you want, when you want it, but that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean he isn't with you. The truth is, if you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, then no matter the depth of your hurt, no matter the weight of your circumstances or the seeming hopelessness of your future, God is with you. And his power and his presence are at work in you. And as long as you understand that that power and that presence is not something you can control or contain or extinguish, but rather in the depths of your own weakness. If you will humbly embrace a total dependence upon Him, then you will experience His power and presence in your life in ways you've never dreamed of. Because no matter what you're going through, God loves you. He is with you. Let's pray.